The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast dedicated to fashion, the art of living well, and all things beauty. I'm your host, Dr. Shirley Madair, your purveyor of this definitive source of living a beautiful life. This week's episode is dedicated to style. In my interview with Dr. Valerie Steele, we'll be talking about fashion as language, the role of dress in culture, history, and the future. Dr. Steele, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for honoring us with your presence. Oh, thank you so much. Dr. Valerie Steele is the director and chief curator of the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology since 2003. She is the author and co-author of more than two dozen books on fashion, and her books have been internationally acclaimed to be translated into Chinese, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Russian, and Spanish. Dr. Steele has a PhD, yes, you heard it right, folks, a PhD from Yale, and is a quintessential figure in fashion's modern legacy. In addition to several books that she's contributed to the fashion lexicon, she has appeared in the media on The Oprah Winfrey Show, PBS, and in Forbes, The New York Times, and The New York Daily News called her one of fashion's most 50 powerful people. As author, curator, editor, and public intellectual, Dr. Steele has been instrumental in creating the modern field of fashion studies and in raising awareness of the global cultural significance of fashion. Thank you and welcome, Dr. Steele. Thank you. So let's get into it. Yes. Where did you grow up and how did you fall in love with fashion? I was born in Boston and grew up mostly in Washington, D.C., so uh, neither of those are particularly <laughs> fashionable cities. D.C. much more so now than it used to be. Yes. Boston's never been a fashionable city. No. Um, I w wanted to be an actress when I was a child. Really? And actually for quite a while. And so that's, I think, how I became interested in the idea of fashion as costuming. My son was nice. He said to me once, oh, Mom, you've been on TV more than most actresses. Yes, that's amazing. And you, you have, actually, with all the media appearances yes. and all the photographs that you've taken at various events. Well, what motivated you to study fashion on this level? It was really accidental. People often talk about how a book can change your life. But in my case, it was two articles in a scholarly journal. We were assigned to do, do an assignment at Yale where we had to look at two articles from a scholarly journal and give a report. Yes. And I can't even remember what my articles were. They were probably on the French Revolution. But my classmate, Judy Coffin, yes. read a feminist journal, Signs, mm. and two articles debating the meaning of the Victorian corset. Ah. Was it oppressive to women or was it sexually liberating? Wow. And it was just like a light bulb went on, and I realized 
fashion's part of culture, I can do fashion history because I'd gone there to study modern European cultural and intellectual history. And so I went to the library and discovered there were lots of kind of antiquarian costume histories, but they didn't treat it as a serious kind of social or mm -hmm. cultural history. It was kind of like, let's count the buttons on the doublet. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a lot of journalism, but there wasn't anything in between. Yes. So I thought, wow, this is great. It's a completely virgin field. Yes. And so that's how I got into it. Thank goodness you did. Unbelievable. What role does fashion play in our current lives, and why are some people obsessed with what they wear? I may be one of them, and for other people, it, it means nothing. Well, fashion is a super important part of the world because it's kind of an interface between our own personal private psyche mm. and the society around us. It's a cliche to say fashion's a second skin, but it really is like this interface with which you're telling the world how you want to be seen. And many people are surprisingly oblivious of this. They say, well, I never think about fashion. I don't right. care about that. And I always say, really? Did your mom pick out your clothes you wore today? <laughs> and they go, well, no, of course not. I picked them out. And I go, right. well, you didn't just pick them up off the floor because they weren't, you know. Right. Sort of people do have some idea how they want to present themselves. Yes. And clothes are one of the main ways we do that. Yes. So fashion does have a language all its own. It has, you could call it a language, but I think it's in a way more like music because mm -hmm. a language says something clearly and music creates a kind of atmosphere, associations, yeah. feelings. It would be embarrassing if you, your clothes were literally saying, I am sexy or I think I'm really rich. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> that would be embarrassing. But yes. you want clothes that maybe will create a kind of aura of richness and sensuality yes. around yourself. Yes. Yes, so a bit of a bit of a, a sim symbolism, yes, rather than an overt language. Exactly, I like it. And how has this language, whether overt or covert, how has this language of fashion spoken throughout history? Have there been seminal moments in in history where perhaps it wasn't obvious, but fashion definitely played a role? Well, first of all, I think human throughout all human civilizations and world history there's some kind of body adornment mm -hmm. even if it's not woven cloth clothes it could be body paint it could be animals furs it's something that people wear to decorate and in some cases to protect and yes. cover their bodies yes and this gradually developed into a kind of as it were, a language, a semiotics, where the forms of adornment and clothing would say, I am male, I am female, I am married, I'm looking for a spouse. Yes. You know, I'm <laughs> yes, in this tribe, I'm in that tribe. Mm -hmm. And then as, it, as the world became more urbanized and, and complicated, a degree of freedom entered into it. And instead of having your clothes announce a kind of socially defined identity, yes. a married woman of in middle age with children in this particular culture, yes. it said, I'm Valerie and I'm really interested in hip hop. Yes. You know, so it started yes. to say things that were about you personally and your interests. And so it became more self-identified. Mm -hmm. And that's really when dress turns into fashion. And it happens slowly and at different periods. It's not just that fashion was a European invention. We definitely see it in medieval Japan and China, and at some level in a variety of other cultures as well, coming in at different points. There hasn't been nearly enough research to identify this, but we know there's been so much contact cross-culturally that we realize that people have been much more savvy about 
what clothes can say exactly. and how they can use those clothes. To relay certain messages without exactly. necessarily saying anything. Exactly. Now, do you have favorite periods of fashion throughout history? Well, of course, I'm really interested in 18th century French fashion. Mm. I also, because I have personal interest in Chinese history, I've sort of the Tang Dynasty is great. That's a period when, you know, Chinese male conservatives complained, our women are dressing like foreigners because <laughs> they're wearing often male clothing of Central Asian peoples and, and riding horseback and playing polo. And yes. this was all before foot binding or anything like that. So that's an interesting period. Uh, I love Indonesia, so I really love the textile cultures of, say, Bali or yes. Sumba. Yes. Um, and I, I like the history of the haute couture. I really am interested from the 1880s yes. to the 1930s. Yes. And then again, sort of in that post-war period from 47 to 68, when it's... Um, so vivid, but also so fraught because its period is is shining, but almost over. Almost over. And is that why haute couture developed in the in that particular period? Because it was post uh, post war or post revolution, and people were just tired of nothingness and war. And, and <laughs> well, I mean, you had you had couture just means sewing, and haute couture as it developed in a modern sense, it came in the middle of the 19th century when Charles Worth turned yes. sewing from being a small-scale artisanal craft into big business, and he claimed also high art. Yes. So after during World War II, Paris was occupied by the Nazis, and it was yes. a really low period for France. And after the war, in a way, couture represented for the French, French civilization, yes. and they wanted to save it. And people around the world had identified with French couturists being the height of beauty and luxury. So they missed it, too. Yes. So there was this feeling where if you could, when Dior appeared and the new look, suddenly women from you know San Francisco to Japan yes. were longing for this new, ultra-feminine, somewhat nostalgic yes. look. And yes. it reemerged in a big way. It was making a statement, and yet it was evoking emotion at the same exactly. time. Exactly, exactly. Very timely. Is fashion more relevant or compelling for women, or does it have equal impact on men and women? Well, I think women are much more conscious of the role that fashion plays in their lives and in the world at large. Yes. Most men seem to be in a, or many men seem to be in a state of denial about <laughs> the role of fashion in their lives. I have to say African-American men, Italian men, there are exceptions. There are yes. men who realize that fashion and style are relevant yes. and um, will make you attractive to other people, etc. Yes. But many men are, are quite clueless about it. Uh, gay men, of course, have notoriously used fashion to communicate mm -hmm. with other gay men in a world which has often been homophobic. Yes. So they've really understood how to use it as a language. Uh, nowadays, I think with younger men, there is much more interest in fashion. It's not necessarily designer fashion. It's more like, you know, the the hordes of young guys waiting on the street to buy the latest Supreme drop. Right. I mean, some of them are paid to do it, to resell it on eBay, but many of them, that's really meaningful for it's them. It's genuine for them. Speaking of men and fashion and style, Dapper Dan. Yes, <laughs> oh, my hero. Oh, yeah, what, I mean, what an evolution of this designer's life. 
Dapper Dan is an extraordinary human being, a really a beautiful soul, a really yes. beautiful human being, and someone whose trajectory, his ability to see early on that these prestige European brand logos, you yes. know, the Gucci's, etc., and then the Louis Vuitton logo spoke so powerfully, particularly to a lot of urban yeah. men. And the way that he was able to, that he couldn't get any of these companies to sell them the clothes because he was in Harlem. Right. So he then really risked his life blowing up these large prints, yes. even covering cars and yes. other machines with, <laughs> with these logos. Then, of course, ultimately, the companies came down on him and shut him down. Right. But now, as we know, he's reemerged in partnership at, with, Gucci with Gucci and just has published a book. Yes. I think there's going to be a film about him. Very exciting. He deserves all the success that I he agree. gets. I agree. I was lusting after that bomber jacket. The bomber jacket. Oh, my God, with the fur yes. sleeves. Amazing. Amazing. If I could have him make one for me, I would do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can. It will cost you, but I know, you definitely can. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of facelifts. Um, <laughs> the fashion industry seems to be at a crossroads. Yeah. Um, what can the industry do to improve its image regarding sustainability and creativity? Well, the industry is definitely at a crossroads. More and more people have realized that fashion is unfortunately one of the most destructive industries mm -hmm. in terms of environmental degradation, mm -hmm. waste, like mountains of used clothes, which often because they're made of materials that don't naturally biodegrade right. are just going to be unremovable garbage for yes. millennia and not to mention the abuse of the laborers in yeah. the fashion industry when you realize that workers in places like Cambodia and Bangladesh are not allowed to unionize are paid subhuman labor and work in extremely dangerous conditions yes. it's really upsetting and the fact that many other industries are also dangerous and exploitative our cell phones are using all kinds of rare minerals yes. that are mined at great risk. Not to mention the radiation exposure. Exactly. Nevertheless, fashion, really, more people are feeling it needs to clean up its act. The question is, can that be done without fundamentally changing the organization of the capitalist global economy? Right. There are two parties. Some think you can improve it significantly without abandoning the idea of production, production, and more production. Yes. Others questioning whether that's possible and whether you might need to radically rethink it away from fast fashion and overconsumption. Yeah towards a much slower, like yes. the slow, slow food fa movement, yes. Yes. where everything is no longer industrial food, but right. organic, smaller farms, yeah. etc. I think that was um, important to discuss because we often think of fashion as this entity that is that stands alone, that is not related to anything else. It is fashion. It's up there in big lights. But it is actually a major part of the global infrastructure, of the global economy. Of course it is. Yeah. And that's the trouble, too, with trying to cut back on it because then you all you have millions of often women who are employed all around the world yes and without this they would have no jobs right 
So it's, it's very important. Um, and speaking of women around the world, so we've had, let's see, Gigi Hadid in dreads for Marc Jacobs. We've had um, Gucci models in, in Sikh style turbans. We've also had Victoria's Secret models in um, Native American headdresses. And uh, most recently, Dior and the Mexican horsewomen. Right. <laughs> so what of culture and fashion? Does fashion have a, a cultural misappropriation um, problem? And is it, is it designs... Is it just honorable to design or is it honorable to culture or is it just blatant exploitation? Well, this is the question. Is it cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation? Ah. And I think that there's no one simple answer. I think that it really varies on a case-to-case basis. We know because Native Americans have been telling us for decades that they really hate it. Yes. When people take sacred symbols like the feather headdress yes. and use them profanely as part of a fashion show. or I mean, I went to Dartmouth and all of these drunken fraternity boys would run onto the field yes. going wahoo wah wearing I know. Uh, Native American headdresses. Yes, I remember so that. we know that's hateful. Yes. We know that Aborigines in, in Australia have similarly been exploited and um, almost driven to extinction and their patterns which are also sacred are being used and copied by the fashion and art industries yes so there's some cases where you have to say this is clearly appropriation the people to whom this in some moral if not legal sense this belongs to them have objected violently to this so you should really stop it there are other cases though when a lot of times Asian Americans will say it's really unacceptable for non-Asians to wear, say, a Changsang, yeah. a Chinese dress, or to wear a kimono. Yes. Most people in China and Japan that I've spoken to said, I don't understand why that... I mean, it, it's a compliment, yes. right? Why wouldn't right. they want to wear it? Right. Maybe it's a little dumb if they wear it as a <laughs> mini Changsang right. with a slit that's too high that yes. looks like a barmaid. Right. But... They, people are surprisingly forgiving of, well, you don't know, so you're doing it wrong. Of course. But often they'll say that they think that it's flattering. It's like, should we not eat Chinese or Japanese food True. because we're not entitled to eat it? It's right. not our authentic cuisine. Right. And in fact, if you go back in time, you find there's been so much cultural exchange over a millennia. Mm. You know, pasta came from... China to Italy. Italy. It's like, who does it belong to? Right. This, um, in a way, it's it's a mistake to focus too much on this chimera of authenticity to say that culture belongs to only one group of people. Agreed. It should be something that we can and have shared with each other. But I think it does have an impact whether you're doing that in a thoughtful way, in a in a way that's respectful, particularly when it's things that are religious symbols. Yes. Even if it's not meaningful to you, it can be meaningful to, to someone, th- else. someone else yes. and can be hurtful to right. them. So I would take it on a case-by-case basis. Got it. And mainly try and communicate. You know, for example, I spoke to one young designer who said he was actually working with people in a particular group in Mexico. He was Mexican, but he was from an urban community. And he was working with people in this village using, with their permission, some of their patterns and employing them to make some of the things. And people were saying, well, you're exploiting them. And he said, Mm -hmm. well, what I'm trying to do is work with them for our mutual benefit. Should I stop this? And I said, it seems to me, if you're working with them and you're communicating with them and And giving them credit for this, their approval, and they're making money from it too, 
then that's not exploitation, it's collaboration. I agree. I agree. It's a fine line. It really is. Have we lost our individual style and fashion sense due to the plethora, the explosion, the inundation of celebrities and stylists <laughs> and influencers and micro-influencers? They're all telling us, you know, recommending how we should dress. Well, people have always wanted to dress like people who are famous. Already in the 18th century, actresses were among the prime fashion trendsetters. And when Marie Antoinette sent a portrait of herself to her mother, the yes. Empress of Austria, she looked so trendy that her mother wrote back and said, there must be some mistake. <laughs> this is not the portrait of the Queen of France. This looks like the portrait of an actress. <laughs> oh, <laughs> mumsy. Leave it to mumsy <laughs> to get it in. But yeah. the point is, at that point, Marie Antoinette really did want to be like queen of fashion. Right. And she was taking cues from Parisian actresses. Ah, okay. So... It's not just that we're doing it. Even uh, great style setters in yes. their own right were That's doing right. it. So On the other hand, because of media uh, being more pervasive, yes. and in a way we're getting more of this more constantly. To some extent, it's quote-unquote democratized because anybody with a video cam at home of can course. present themselves and potentially become... A fashion, a, a fashion queen. Yes, or a fashion victim. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I think we shouldn't overestimate how much people are just suckers for copying other people. Because yes. in real life, as you get past the age of about 13, yeah. you start to spend more attention the, at looking at people who are actually in your world, not just people who are images on a screen. That's true. And so you're looking at your classmates, yes. your boss, your yeah. colleagues. Yes, those immediately in your environment. What is your definition of fashion versus style? Well, fashion tends to be seen as moving more quickly and being more associated with the global fashion industry. On the other hand, I think my definition of fashion is more like the cultural construction of the human identity. And it involves not just fashionable clothes, but hairstyles. Mm -hmm. I mean, your hairstyle is clearly a part of your self-presentation. It involves makeup, it involves tattoos. So I think there, the difference between style and fashion is much more blurred. Mm. But we tend to speak of it as though style is something that perhaps is more personal, personal. and fashion is a more socially induced. So I, but I think they're two sides of the same thing. Okay. In general, do we dress for others or for ourselves? And does, the, does our manner of dress empower us in a way? Well, again, I think it depends on the individual. Some people very much are dressing for other people. If you're going out on a first date, for example, yes. very often you're trying to dress to impress that person. Yes. If you're going to a job interview, this is not about what you feel like that morning. That's it's right. really about what you think will create a good impression. That's true. At other times, it's much more, and with other people, it's much more about they have a sense, I want to look like this. They may not care very much about what other people think right. or they may not they may be sort of a bit Asperger's-ish and they don't quite realize what effect they're having on, on other people by yes. the way they dress um, so it varies and the second half of your question was can dread the ma our manner of dress actually empower us oh it can absolutely our manner of dressing can empower us not least 
because it can make us feel more confident. Yeah, like armor, like you're wearing armor. Absolutely. There's no question that, you know, like a chic little black dress is yes. a kind of armor in which you can face the world. Very true. So there's freedom of the press, thank goodness. And I have to question, is there really freedom of dress? What does it mean? What does it mean for us to dress our age? And shouldn't we have the freedom to dress however we want to according to our mood, irrespective of the age or the number? Well, through world history, there's been very little freedom of dress. <laughs> there have been all kinds of customs that you didn't want to break, as well as sumptuary laws that you could be punished for breaking. Right. So, you know, you weren't allowed to wear red unless you were an aristocrat. Right. One, of the, one of the demands made in the 16th century in the Peasants' Revolt was the right to wear red. Should you be able to afford to wear red because yes. it was an expensive dye? Nowadays, since the 1970s, most of these rules have broken down mm -hmm. in most of the world. Yes. Um, but not always. I mean, you can go to places where, particularly if you're offending religious sensibilities, mm -hmm. you better be careful what yes, you're wearing. of course. Um, on the other hand, you do still face social criticisms. People yes. will say, oh, she's mutton dressed as lamb. <laughs> That's a very old-fashioned expression. <laughs> but if you're dressing too, too yes. quote-unquote, young yes. for your age. Right. Um, Nowadays, most of the time, people can't enforce these rules. Of course. But they can still try and shame you if they think you're not yes. dressing the right way. Yes, whatever So that I means. think the freedom you have is the freedom you take. Right, right. And although dress varies across the world, are there fashion ideas or motifs that actually unite people across the globe? Well, there are certainly certain kinds of clothes which have become part of vernacular global fashion. If you look around the world, the vast majority of people seem to be wearing sneakers. Yes, or trainers. Uh, or trainers, trainers, as they're called in other countries. I think there are young people who have never worn a pair of leather shoes. Right. Uh, T-shirts, mm -hmm. blue jeans. Although now I gather for that a lot of young people, blue jeans are regarded as too confining compared to the comfort of yoga pants right. or sweatpants. <laughs> right. Which, uh, you know, Karl Lagerfeld said sweatpants are the beginning of the end. I know. know? I remember that. <laughs> I don't think he ever made sweatpants. He definitely never wore sweatpants. No, we never no, saw him we wearing sweatpants. never saw him in sweatpants. And how is fashion affected by a gender-fluid society? Um, does a gender-fluid society affect how we dress in turn? Yes. And gender has been one of the biggest dividers historically yes. in dress. Almost all cultures have distinguished between male and female, although they've sometimes had also a third category of people who could, as it were, shift from one to the yes. other category, uh, usually in the form of men who dressed and behaved as women. Right. Um, but even if we can't tell the difference, for example, a Japanese kimono for a man is different than a Japanese okay. kimono for a woman. Okay. Or the way you tie a sarong is different yes. in Bali for a man or a woman. Over the past couple centuries, in a number of cultures, but particularly in Euro-American culture, yes. women have claimed the rights to wear elements of men's clothing, mm -hmm. most famously trousers. Yes. Men, not surprisingly, have been much less eager to claim aspect of women's wardrobes because women have less prestige and power than men. In general. Across, really, you can't yes. think of any examples mm -hmm. like, that are culturally uh, where women have more power. Right. Even in so-called matriarchal cultures, they really mean matrilineal. Yes. It's not that the women have more power, power. it's that things go through the female line. Right. So um, men haven't wanted to like wear dresses, not because 
a sarong is just as comfortable or more comfortable than trousers. Right. But if, if, if it's associated with women, you don't want to wear a skirt. But in recent years, men have, a few men have bravely started yes. to say, oh, well, I could wear a kilt, I could wear a sarong, right. I could even wear a skirt. Right. Um, I could carry a purse. I could carry a purse. And, yes. you know, really, some of the first guys I saw wearing purses, it was so brave. Yeah. It was really, really brave. Yeah. Um, also, the business with jewelry. Oh, yes. Um, men used to wear as much or more jewelry as women. Right. Uh, Transhistorically, including, you know, diamond and pearl earrings. Yes. Well, that went out after the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So it was a big deal in the late 20th century when men started to get in touch with their inner pirate and start wearing <laughs> earrings again. Right. And that was really important that sports figures did that because then he made it clear that, oh, you can be really definitively ultra-masculine and right. still have an earring. Or two. Or two. Right. And, but this was a major change. Yes. That was astonishing change over my lifetime that you've yes. seen men wearing earrings. Yes. That's pretty cool, actually. So do certain fashion items convey specific messages? For example, does a red suit imply something different from a little black dress? Obviously, a corset is different from a white blouse. But what's, what sort of subliminal messages are these items of clothing conveying? Well, the meaning of any item is not inherent in the garment itself. Wow, okay. A shoe has no particular meaning built into it. Okay. It's always going to be contextual. Same with a corset. Um, what period in time you have do you have to wear it? Who's wearing it? So if a, a nineteen a woman in eighteen fifty pretty much had to wear a corset to look respectable. Yes. I mean, <laughs> Instead I of mean, letting it all hang out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but nowadays we assume that you don't have to wear it. Right. But still I remember from my youth in the in the 1970s, my mother begging me to wear a bra when I went to the eye doctor, <laughs> saying, he's an old man. Like he'd have a heart attack if, if I weren't wearing a bra. Right. And it used to be that way with corsets, too. Yes. That that would be, it would be shocking, unrespectable, yes. you know, just like so lower class and right. it would be unacceptable. Right, if you didn't um, keep it together. You didn't keep it together. So the meaning is contextual. I like that. And it's a, it's a meaning that... We all, as people in society, keep renegotiating all the time. Yes. So that young women who started saying, we can wear trousers, right. they were redefining what it meant. Trousers no longer signified a man's garment. Right. It began to signify a unisex garment. Yes, thank goodness for that. And in the same vein, has color evolved in fashion throughout history? Do black and pink denote the same thing or different things to different people? Again, or is that contextual? That's completely culturally determined. Um, there are various kinds of pop psychology color books yes. and pseudoscientific color books that claim that color means, one color will mean one thing. You right. know, red always equals romance. You know, But it's not true. Okay. Colors are culturally conditioned that what we what what we think of a color depends on the culture we come from and that can change we've seen with the color pink in yes. recent years how a color which for about a hundred years had mostly signified femininity and yes. didn't before that and signified femininity first just in euro-america and among middle and upper class people, yes. and then gradually spread around the world. But then there was a reaction against that, that people kept saying, well, hey, but in my culture, pink used to be for men, too. Yes. Or 
but why shouldn't men have to be able to wear pink? Right. And so, you know, rock musicians, um, hip-hop musicians, yes. people, all kinds of men started wearing pink and redefining what that meant. I'm definitely a power of pink girl. Absolutely. <laughs> I love pink. Pink is a great, great color. Yeah. And I think that although it, the hundred years of pink femininity hasn't disappeared, we've now got all kinds of layers on top yes. of that, of alternative masculine, unisex, yes. political yes. pink. Yes. It's no longer kind of Trisha Nixon pink. It right. could be pink pussy hat. It could right. be pink sorry rebellion. Yeah. It could be all kinds of things. I love it. And in the business of fashion, what are some of the challenges that designers face either at a legendary house or on their own as independents? Well, independents are in a really difficult situation now because the fashion world is increasingly divided between the big luxury corporations yeah. like LVMH and the big fast fashion corporations like Zara and H&M. Yes. And the room for independent designers in between is getting more and more squished. It's really hard to survive uh, as an independent. Now, if you're working for a big luxury company, it can seem that you've landed in the catbird seat. But as we've seen with many designers, there's so much work involved, can be up to 10 collections a yes. year and oh, yes. multiple presentations. And even with a great team, it can be the pressure can be overwhelming and people can start to crack under that. Yeah, it is labor intensive and I had not realized how much work it is. Um, they never stop. It never they stops. can have 10 fashion shows a year. Yeah, that is incredible. And in your opinion, what are some of fashion's most significant moments? Well, I mean, I think it was significant when women, over time, it's not a moment, it's a continuum, yes. when women started to be able to wear pants. Yes. I think that um, it was significant when um, fashion began to become more multicultural. Mm -hmm. I think that that moment in the 60s, the kind of canty cloth, Afrocentric moment was very, very important. I think that it was important when people started to acknowledge that so many fashions have been started by gay men <laughs> and also by lesbians and yes. by bisexuals and transgender people. Yes. And that was something that was a kind of open secret, right. but that was kind of amazing and wonderful when people started to really acknowledge that yeah. and say that LGBTQ people were among the leading fashion trendsetters in the world. Yes. In the same way that uh, Afri Afri people in the African diaspora have been major trendsetters in fashion. And yet, if you look at the number of famous designers online, yes. less than 1% is black. Yes. And you think, where's that coming from? Right. Um, so there are a lot of people who are sort of hidden behind mm -hmm. big company names. Yes. But more and more, they are starting to come out. So I think there are a lot of unacknowledged players in fashion. Uh, and I... I celebrate all those moments when they start getting some of the publicity they yes, deserve. I agree. And I'm very, I'm thrilled that fashion has become more inclusive and diverse. Yes. Because I think it makes all of our lives better. It makes everybody's lives I better agree. because fashion can be such a source of joy and yes. self-expression. Yes. As well as a great way to make money yes. and, you know, and live part, a beautiful and life. Live a beautiful <laughs> life. Exactly. And part B to that question is uh, what are some of fashion's most memorable creations, items specifically? Well, blue jeans, yes. although wildly destructive to the environment, are an amazing garment. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent said he wished he could have invented blue jeans. Yeah. He thought it was the <laughs> ultimate 20th century garment. 
Um, so maybe we just will start recycling them and learn yes. how to, to avoid some of the um, environmental, environmental yeah. problems with yes. it. Uh, so the little black dress, yes. uh, Chanel didn't invent it, but she did popularize it, and it's still a real icon for a lot of people. Yes. In the same way, the white shirt yes. for men and for women Agreed. is a kind of a fabulous thing. The trench coat, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that this garment associated with one of the most horrific environments, I mean, the rat and lice-filled trenches of World War I has now become this ultra-glamorous luxury yeah. item. But there it is. <laughs> there it is. There it is. And, oh, I mean, I suppose the black leather jacket. Yes. I mean, it's, again, an incredibly iconic thing. And sneakers. Yes. I mean, shoes have been around for millennia. First sandals, then boots, then shoes. But sneakers are the newest kind of footwear. Uh, and at only about 100 years old, they yes. have proliferated to take over the world. And, and all sorts of styles. I mean, from your most basic Converse, et cetera, all the way up to the high end with Swarovski crystals. and Yes. Hmm. It's my new, my new obsession. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of shoes, um, stilettos, boning. It has been said that we must suffer for beauty, although <laughs> I disagree. But stilettos, boning, and some other restrictive articles of clothing, must we also suffer for fashion? And in order to be fashionable, must we give up comfort? <laughs> well, nowadays, to be fashionable, you don't have to give up comfort. Thank goodness. In the past, it's true that if you had to wear a corset, and today, even in Japan, if you have to wear high heel shoes yes. to work as a woman, then yes, you often do have to be uncomfortable to be in fashion. Right. Um, the degree of discomfort associated with corsets or high heels has varied tremendously. Um, I remember when I did my corset show, I had a handmade custom replica of an 1880s corset oh made for me in black leather. Wow. Wow. And it was so that cool. Is it was handmade so cool. That's by this badass, wonderful couturier. <laughs> and as he was making it, at one point, I, I looked back and I said, but the fat's coming up off the top of it. And he said, but, but Val, the, the fat has to go somewhere. And I'm like, well, make it go somewhere else. <laughs> and he did. He adjusted it more. And so I put on this corset, and I had breasts, and I had yes. a little tiny waist, yes. and I had hips. It was amazing. Yes. And at the party, people were saying, isn't that uncomfortable? And I said, no, the corset is actually fairly comfortable. Yes. But my heels are killing yeah. me. <laughs> Is standing on the cement floor in yes. four-inch heels yes. was really uncomfortable. So it's relative. Okay. So you don't have to be uncomfortable for to be in fashion. But it is really fascinating how so many people still think in a way that no pain, no gain. Yes. And if, if it's not fashion, it's working out. It's I mean, the examples that Montaigne gave in 17th century France, he yes. said, what tortures do women not endure to have a small waist Spanish style right. wearing a bone corset? Yes. They even have perfectly good teeth pulled out, pulled out, or they have their skin rubbed to get away with the wrinkles away. And I thought, that sounds like plastic surgery yes. and dental, <laughs> dental corrective surgery exactly. to me. We're still doing it We're now, doing four it centuries now. later. Many centuries later. Thank goodness. 
<laughs> so in the 20 speaking of centuries later in the 21st century we speak about new textiles and technologies and um, will there be innovation in fashion or will we just see reconfigurations of current and past styles I think we certainly will continue to see innovative fashions there's a limit because we do have two arms and two legs for the most part yes. most of us and although you, you can and people have made jackets with three yes. sleeves they're not particularly popular. No. <laughs> um, on the other hand, new fabrics could be quite revolutionary. Yes. There is a woman in England uh, who does bio couture who's growing textiles from, from um, what are those things? Uh, organic material. I mean, yeah. it grows like, like germs. Wow. Which reminds me of a science fiction book written in the 1970s called The Garments of Cain, oh, like wow. Cain and Abel. Yes. Who, and, of course... They're alive, and soon they're like the computer in 2001. How they're up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> so you you could imagine growing clothes yeah. instead of cutting and sewing them. Right. They're working on being able to grow artificial leather and things, so you would no longer have to kill animals right. for food right. or uh, leather. Or leather. I'm sure that's big in uh, Stella McCartney's. Yes. Uh, right, bio, bio couture. I really like that. I mean, if we can grow tissue and if we can go grow That's skin, right. why couldn't we why couldn't grow you grow material? materials That's right. and clothing? And then, as the world's weather becomes more and more horribly disrupted, oh to the extent that we could have clothes that would regulate your own body, body environment, yeah. your body temperature, that would be a huge help. Yeah. Certainly, in the last few days, I would have loved clothing that would have air condition yeah, my body. No, no kidding. It's been <laughs> awfully hot and humid in New York City. How can we be ageless in fashion? In my industry, we speak about being ageless and, and age rejuvenation and, and anti-aging. Could we actually use fashion to be ageless? Well, in a way, it's like the term timeless, yes. which is used to describe fashion. And no fashion is really timeless, although some styles are less clearly linked to a particular moment in time. Yes. I mean, if you're wearing big sh shoulders, people will think of the 40s or the 80s. Yes. Um, but even a quote-unquote timeless neoclassical gown yes. is in fact associated with ancient Asian. Greece, yes. Rome, the 1930s, etc. So I think you can't really look ageless any more than your clothes will be timeless. So right. they're they're the marks of time on everything. This is true, um, including but they are, our faces. Including our faces. Yeah. <laughs> but just as certain clothes look more timeless compared to others, I suppose there are certain ways to present yourself that look less less clearly aging or aged than right. others. Right. I mean, you certainly, when I go to northern Italy and right. I see all of these incredibly elegant right. older women, yes. or Japan, these incredibly elegant and seem ageless older women, right. and you think, they're doing something right. You know, they're not dressing too young, but they're yes. not, you know, dressing in widow's weeds. Right, they've right. got some kind of thing going that makes them look relatively ageless. And always fabulous. And like really this. always fabulous, yeah. Ageless is an attitude, then. Yeah. I would agree with that. What are you most excited about for the future of fashion? Well, um, I'm just curious to see what new creative people will be up to, mm. meaning not just designers, but also the kids on the street. Yeah. I mean, what people, what individuals do with fashion is to me as interesting as what a professional fashion designer is doing. I mean, 
when I did my show with Daphne Guinness, just what she does with clothes, putting them together oh, yes. and creating her own style. It's artistic. It's very artistic. Before I ask you your top five recommendations for living a fabulous and fashionable life, one last question for you prior to that. If you could design your most iconic article of clothing, what would it be? My most iconic? What I'm yes. most associated with? Yes. I suppose I'm most associated with the cat's eye glasses. Yes, love them. And I've been wearing Selima's cat's eye glasses for years, but this particular, it used to be tortoiseshell. This particular one with the leopard print yes, I love is, it. is unique. I mean, this is the only one that she's found. Wow. And I live in terror that I'm going to break it. <laughs> and I keep saying to her, you've got to find another one yes, like absolutely. this or make it somewhere. <laughs> well, they look fantastic. And finally, Dr. Steele, what are your top five recommendations for living a fabulous and fashionable life? I call these the fab oh, five. Well, for a fabulous life, I think... Uh, you have to try and be happy in the moment. I mean, that sounds like a kind of Californian woo-woo thing to no, say. No, but worth, it but I, worth I repeating, think that absolutely. It does bear repeating because as someone who's normally an extremely anxious person <laughs> wakes up in the middle of the night, I'm worried. What am I worried about? I'm worried. I've said something. <laughs> I think it's really important to try and relax and enjoy the moment, um, even if it's sort of like... I'm not in any pain right now. That's right. I'm sitting here. We're talking with somebody interesting. This is yeah. a happy moment. Yes. So Thank you. Be try and, and feel that sort of gratefulness for where you are at the yes. moment. And try to be nice to other people. Oh, Again, yes. this sounds like so, but it it's not, a, it's not about you. It's about right. if you can try and be nice to other people, it will actually also make you feel better. Agreed. Um, and try and... Do something that's meaningful to you. It's not just about what's amusing to you, but is there? I think that Freud said work and love are the two things that everybody needs. Yes. And I think that that's really true. You have to have people that you're close to, whether they're a lover, a child, a family, friends. That's really important. And you have to spend t a time and effort to to maintain those relationships. Yes. And then you have to do some kind of work which is meaningful to you. Are those five things or only four? Uh, that was actually four. So be happy in the moment, be nice to others, do something meaningful to you, and work on work and Well, I guess love. do something meaningful for you is kind of a wor is the work thing. Okay, the do work that thing. meaningful thing for you yes. and invest in love relationships with others. And then, the um, I guess the fifth one, um, Get some dress up as though you're going to maybe meet somebody really important to you Ooh. when you get up. You never know what will happen that day. So dress that. up to greet the day. Dress up to greet the day. Okay. Fantastic up to meet the day. I'm writing that down. I'm going to tag that. <laughs> so, Dr. Steele, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening, folks, to Dr. Valerie Steele on fashion as language, the role of dress in culture, history, and the future. 
The Museum of FIT is rich in color, fashion history, and fashionable art. I encourage you to visit as often as you can. I certainly do. The current exhibit is Minimalism Maximalism, and that defines the two extremes along the design spectrum. But the upcoming exhibit is... The upcoming show will be Paris Capital of Fashion. Delicious. Which will open September 6th with... 100 objects from the 18th century to the present. Cannot wait. So please, everyone, check out these exhibits. You will not regret it. Thank you for listening to this week's Forever Fab podcast episode. Thank you, Dr. Steele, for your time and your expertise, your fashionableness. (laughs) And everyone, until next time, stay beautiful and fashionable inside and out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty, curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD. Live beautifully and help make the world a more beautiful place.